I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of Romans chapter 8. Today, if you are just joining us for the first or second time, you're catching us near the end of a series in Romans 5 through 8. And we are at a point in that series that is very encouraging to us. And also, at the same time, this passage today has some real heavy lifting attached to it. So I want you to have your Bibles open and ready. And let's pray together and ask for God's help, shall we? Please pray with me. Father in heaven, you are a great and mighty God. And the fact that you let us see how you work, how you accomplish your purposes, how you fulfill your promises is both encouraging and challenging to us. And so we pray that you would expand our minds to you this morning, that you would give us receptive hearts, and that we would revel in the glory that you portray. We pray for the sake of that glory. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. I wonder if you've ever looked at your situation and seen the pain and the lack of hope, and if you've cried out and said, why? Why, God? Why would you allow this to happen? This happened to me last Sunday night. As I sat on the edge of my chair for three and a half hours asking myself, why? Why didn't the Patriots defense show up to the Super Bowl? Why, God, would you allow this to happen? And I must say that for the couple thousand people that call Old North Church their home, for all of you who are trying to grow as part of a family together, for all of you who are trying to grow in Christian love, I can think of only one of you that was nice to me. (laughs) Most of you rubbed it in. Some of you sat in silence, and others of you are just happy that football season is over altogether. But one, one of you was nice to me after the Patriots lost the Super Bowl. Her name was Amy Gatsky. (laughs) And as I got into bed that last Sunday night and sighed a deep sigh and asked one more time, why did this happen? She leaned over and she gave me a gentle kiss on the cheek and she said, That's okay, honey. Now you know what Steelers fans have been feeling for the last 10 years. (laughs) All right. We got that out of the way. We can talk about more serious things. When faced with the serious struggles of life, not football, but the serious struggles of life, It is not uncommon for us to plead with God with that very same question. Why? Why, God, are you allowing this to happen to me? Why, God, do I hurt so badly? Why, God, am I struggling in my job? Why, God, do I struggle to find victory over this sin? Why, God, did my spouse leave me? Why does this life have to be so hard? 
And we turn, as we turn our attention to the book of Romans chapter 8, we get a glimpse into the answer to this question, why? Romans 8 is one of the most encouraging books of the Bible. (laughs) And the section we're going to look at today is one of the most encouraging chapters in one of the most encouraging, or one of the most encouraging sections in one of the most encouraging chapters in all the Bible. And you can hear the underlying concern that the Apostle Paul addresses. It's the very concern that we're talking about right now. Because in Romans 5-8, through we see the wonderful trajectory of God's transforming work that he does in the lives of those who put their faith in Jesus. And there's all kinds of good news attached to it. There's all kinds of good news to the fact that God remakes us for the sake of his glory. And yet... Paul knows that as we see God doing that remaking work, that very real on-the-ground dynamic of the tension of our everyday experience causes us to ask the question, why? And so you can hear almost the reader saying, Paul, you say that God justifies us and gives us a standing before him because of Jesus. And you say that we're no longer slaves to sin because Jesus unites himself to us forever. And you acknowledge that the life that we live is still very hard because even though we're part of God's family, we live in the fallen world. But you say that we are now children of God. So why do these difficult things keep happening? I thought you loved me. Why is it so hard sometimes? And so let's read Paul's response in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30 together. Follow with me. This is what he says, starting in verse 28. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. And so I want to give you a roadmap of where we're going to go over the next couple minutes together. Because this is a passage that is loaded with important ideas and complicated theological terms and the wonderful realities of God's sovereign power as it's displayed in the blessings of Christians. But really, with all of that, this passage boils down to just two component parts. Part number one is this incredible promise That God works all things together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. What a promise is that? And part number two is the grounding of the promise, or the reason why we can be sure that that is true. Namely, that his eternal purposes are displayed in you. And so let's look at the two parts. Let's look at the first part first, the incredible promise. Look with me again at verse 28. A promise that God gives that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. What a tremendous promise. The one who holds all things together promises to work all things out for good. And this, of course, becomes in a point of examination for us on really four fronts. I mean, what does God mean when he says all things? What does he mean when he says good? What does he mean or who is this promise actually applied to? And lastly, how is it demonstrated or how can we be sure? Let's first consider the idea that God works all things. (laughs) The God of the universe displays his sovereign power in a variety of ways throughout the Bible, throughout history, throughout your personal experience, and even right here in this section of text. And to say that God is sovereign means that God acts independently of any other influence upon him. We could put it in street terms. God does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. No questions asked. That's what it means to be sovereign. And one of the ways that he chooses to display his sovereign power is by the working out of circumstances and events in the lives of Christians for their ultimate good. And it's easy enough for us to see this to be true when the events or circumstances of our lives feel good to us or when they look good to us or when we like them, when they involve our financial gain or relational love or gifts that are appealing to you. It's easy to say, oh, God is working all these things out for my good. It's part of the way that he blesses us, isn't it? And we use language that communicates this all the time. We say things like, oh, you have a beautiful, new, healthy baby. God must be blessing your family. Or, wow, you got a big promotion last week at work. Clearly, the favor of the Lord is upon you. And so on and so on. It's right to recognize that God gives these wonderful things, that God blesses us in these ways, that he loves his children, and he loves to give good gifts to his children. So it's not hard to see how these things, the good things, the easy things, relate to the all things. <laughs> but the reason why Paul needs to express it in terms of all things is because of the things that we don't often believe to be functioning for our good. <laughs> Suffering, trials, persecution. This is those why God moments that you've experienced. I mean, it's not so incredible that God could take the pleasurable things and work them out for your good. But what is truly amazing is that God can take the unpleasurable things, the terrible things, the things that are painful to you, and somehow, through his sovereign power, he uses even those things to accomplish eternal good for you. And so it's clear that in the context of Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, that the good that he's talking about is not simply temporal in nature, it's eternal in nature. I mean, after all, he's recognized that 
we have a difficulty in our battle with sin and it's hard. It's hard to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's hard. Or in chapter 8, verse 17, that the children of God are marked by those who are willing to suffer with Jesus in order that we might be glorified with Jesus. It's hard. So we see that the good here is not simply our mental or emotional or our physical health in every minute of every day during our experience of life here on earth. There's something greater at play. God's primary concern is not your temporary sense of happiness. He is concerned about that, but that is not his primary concern. God's primary concern is not your temporary sense of happiness. It is your eternal place of joy. The good that God promises here in Romans chapter 8 is the good, the type of good, that lasts in you and for you forever. And so that begs the question, who is this promise for? And let's be clear about this because we don't want to confuse the implications of this text because that leads us to all kinds of weird applications about this promise. The promise to work all things for the good is not a promise for all humankind. God does give all humankind a number of great gifts. He exercises his common grace. He gives a variety of things that are helpful and pleasing and good for humankind. But this specific promise of working out all the circumstances of life for our eternal good is reserved for, as it says in verse 28, those who love God and clarified by saying those who are called according to his purpose. Notice the parallel. Those who love God in the first part of the verse, those who are called according to his purpose in the second part of the verse, that helps us see who he's talking about here. One describes the relationship that we perceive to have with God from our human experience. From our human experience, we say, I love God. (laughs) The other describes the nature of the relationship from a divine perspective looking downward. That is to say, they are called according to my purpose, says God. And it also helps us understand how we can love God. Because if you've been tracking through Romans 5 and 6 and 7, you've been seeing this dynamic that the power of sin is so strong in us, how is it even possible for me to love God of my own volition? I don't know that it is. I mean, Paul says, how can a person possibly love God, a person who is from the realm of Adam, with sin and death and its consequences attached? How can that person love God? How can people who do not do what they want to do and do the things that they don't want to do, how can those types of people, Romans chapter 7, love God? How can people with sinful tendencies, just as me and you, actually love God when all we tend to love is ourselves or the things that please us? But this love, to love God, actually has deep roots. Because it is rooted in the divine action itself. That he called us according to his purpose. And this purpose can be expressed in a variety of ways. God's eternal purpose for your good is your salvation. (laughs) It's your adoption. 
it is expressed in verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. I want every single one of you to know something great. God has a purpose for you. (laughs) He didn't leave you here to wander around and try to figure it out. God's purpose for you is to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, and in doing so, you become one of his sons. What a great purpose. And he promises to work out the situations of your life to accomplish this purpose. Now, some of you are saying, Nick, I don't want to be conformed to the image of anybody else. I want to be conformed to the image of me. I'm happy with the image I have. And if you think that, then you haven't considered too carefully who Jesus really is. Because there is no image greater. You don't really want to be conformed to the image of yourself that stumbles and falls and is broken and can't reach a level of perfection, do you? Read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and see an image of Jesus who is perfect and in glory and powerful and mighty and loving and caring. That's the image that you want to be conformed to, right? There is no image greater than that. And so what are the implications? Well, the implications are when you struggle and when you wrestle with temptation to sin on this life, just as Jesus wrestled with temptation, the struggle itself is an act of God conforming you to his son. This means that when you're ill and you can't rely on your own physical strength, that God is actually working in the circumstances of your illness to teach you dependence upon himself, which is in the image of his very own son. This means that when a relationship with Jesus costs you something, that God is shaving off the rough edges of pride and reputation to conform you to a greater reputation, that of his son. It means that when you're a victim, that God is still right there, pressing you forward toward this conformity to his son, who was, by definition, the victim and paying a penalty that wasn't his. So what a great promise, isn't it? What a great hope that God is going to work out the situations and circumstances of your life for an eternal good. But I can hear some of us saying, and I can hear the reader saying, how can we be sure that God is actually going to do these things? Because I tell you what, when I'm on the ground in the midst of suffering, illness, trial, persecution, temptation, it sure doesn't feel to me like God is using that for my good. It feels like it's going to undo me. How can I be sure? And that's where he tells us in verse 29 and 30 that God's relationship with you and his purpose for you is actually rooted in eternity past. And that's why you can be sure. God will not abandon his eternal purposes in you. So how do you know? How do you know that God's going to actually work the circumstances for your good? Because he has eternal purposes, and he's not going to abandon them. 
Paul pulls back the curtain in some ways. He allows us to see different aspects of God's work in our life. And even when we don't feel like this is the way that God works, or we wouldn't describe our experience in relationship with God in these terms, he shows us the nature of divine action that we cannot see. And he does so with one purpose, that you would be bolstered in confidence of the promise, that you would really believe that God is working out the circumstances of your life for good, even when it doesn't feel like it. And so let's look at this divine action that bolsters our confidence. It says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so we see these big terms, for new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And they point us to a reality of God's eternal purposes. God, when we are allowed to see the things of the divine plan, when somebody lets us see behind the curtain per se, some of us might be tempted to be offended at this point. Our sensibilities might be sort of ruffled a little bit. And we say, how dare, how dare there be somebody who's acting on my behalf in ways that are out of my control? How dare you, God, for doing that? But then we think about our life and the nature of our finite humanity and we say, well, actually, there are a lot of things that are happening that are out of my control. And even though I desperately want control in all the areas of my life, I've never actually achieved it yet. And in fact, not only are there a lot of things that are happening out of my control, there is a chief adversary who's doing a number of things out of my control and attempting to destroy me in the process. His name is Satan. He's lying to you. He's tempting you. He wants to destroy you. And so when you start to think about it that way, you say, wow, isn't it a wonderful thing that we have such a good and loving God who decides to act sovereignly on our behalf even when we don't think we need it or want it or even deserve it? Letting us see God's work should not offend our sensibilities of freedom but rather it should give us great confidence in the loving promises of our Father. And so Paul outlines the work of salvation as it relates to this specific purpose, and he does so to give us confidence in the promise that God is actually working out the good in your life for an eternal purpose. And in doing so, he describes these aspects of salvation from eternity past to our present reality to our future in eternity. And this is what he says. He says, those he foreknew, he also predestined. Foreknowledge and predestination are God's sovereign work in eternity past. Now remember what sovereignty means, that God acts independently of any other influence, that he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And this is an expression of that. And predestination is what it sounds like it is. It is that God destines something or somebody toward an eternal end. 
that God destined someone, in this case, toward salvation or toward the conforming to his son. Foreknowledge, he says here, is the grounding by which he performs this action of predestination. And so let's flesh it out a bit because I know it's often a point of confusion. And Because how we understand foreknowledge will inform what we understand predestination to actually be. Now if, if, as some people tend to think, if predestination is based on a concept of foreknowledge, that means that God simply looks into the future and he sees who will accept the gospel and then saves them as a result, then the saving act that comes is not ultimately the result of God's choosing, but it's the result of the choice of the human who says, I want to be part of the family of God forever. And there's some attraction to this idea that God looks in the future, sees what you're going to do, and responds accordingly. And the attraction to this view is it saves us the tension that, that some people believe that God just sort of arbitrarily chooses some and not others. And it preserves for us a sense of Western um, notion of freedom. It keeps that intact for us, doesn't it? But there are two problems with that view. And the first is that if a human actually chooses and God responds to the choice, then why even have the idea of predestination in the first place? What does predestination even mean? Or why is it even listed? But secondly, the second problem with that view is even greater than the first. And that is it doesn't grasp the idea or the understanding of what it means to foreknow. It doesn't really get to the meaning of the word. The background of the term comes from the Old Testament, where God, or for God, to know something or somebody refers to his covenantal love that he sets his affection on those whom he's chosen. And I want to say that again, because it's so important to get. For God to know somebody refers to his covenantal love in which he sets his affections on somebody he chooses. And there are a lot of Old Testament examples of this. I'll list just a couple. In the Old Testament, the easiest example probably to look to is the prophet Jeremiah. And it says in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God is saying to the prophet himself, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to a prophet, as a prophet to the nations. Before you were born, I knew you, God says. Now the parallel terms consecrate and appoint help us understand what this knowledge actually means. Because in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, the text is not merely saying that God foresaw into the future that Jeremiah would be a prophet. No, the text is trying to communicate that God appointed, chose, consecrated Jeremiah to be a prophet, to be a mouthpiece for him to all the nations. He foreknew him. 
Another example you can find is Amos chapter 3, verse 2. And this is God talking to his people Israel and his knowledge of the people of Israel in contrast to the rest of the nations is not merely sort of a cognitive knowledge that Israel is there and the other nations are there. God knows all the nations. He's God. (laughs) But for God to know Israel is to say that he sets his covenantal love on this people that he's chosen to work through. And this follows through with Abraham and Moses and all kinds of other examples in the Old Testament as well. Romans chapter 11 too yields the same conclusion. It says God has not rejected his people for, that he foreknew. And so what does that mean? This means that God exercises his covenantal love with people as he knows them in eternity past. God didn't just know about you. He knew you. He actually knew you. And he chose to act kindly and exercise his love and his compassion toward you. And the way that he does that is in predestination. I wonder if you have ever felt the experience of not being chosen or being chosen last. I really enjoy the entertainer Garrison Keillor and his sketches. And he recalls the childhood pain of being chosen last for the Sandlot baseball team. He says, the captains are down to their last grudging choices. A slow kid for catcher or someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits it. And they choose the last ones two at a time. You and you and you and you because it makes no difference. And the remaining kids, the scrubs, the excess, they deal for us as handicaps. If I take him, then you, well, you have to take him, they say. Sometimes I go as high as sixth, but usually lower. But just once, I'd like Daryl to pick me first. Him, I want him. The skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes. You, come on over here to my team but I've never been chosen with so much enthusiasm. Christian, did you ever think about the fact that you are so valuable to God that he chose you in the very first round with great enthusiasm? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 is just one of many verses that point to this. It says, he, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And I know, I know that as we talk about this difficult doctrine, I know that the doctrine of predestination evokes all kinds of questions in us about our freedom and personal responsibility and the justice of God and how God displays his love and the nature of our salvation. I understand that. And those questions are good questions. 
If you're asking them, good on you. Now we'll be addressed at another time, and Romans 9 particularly addresses many of them. But in the meantime, don't let the wonderful, glorious act of this eternal work in the past of God's love to pass you by. Let it wash over you that God loves you that much. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And from there, we can go to those he predestined, he called. And this is the part of the Christian experience that if anybody here is a Christian, we're all, many of us, many of us are Christians, we can all relate to, right? That God called us to himself, that someone told us the gospel, that we read it, that we heard it preached, that it happened in a small group or a conversation, that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords made clear to us something that we could not resist. It was an effectual calling. The blinders were taken off of our eyes. We had hearts of stone that God replaced with hearts of flesh. We were persuaded to respond. And as a result of seeing the truth of who God is and who we are and the nature of the salvation, we grieved our sin for what it was. And we saw the need for a Savior. And so we trusted him to forgive us. And we basked in the love of God that he gave because of this great gift of his mercy. God called. <laughs> we responded. And that's what happens when somebody is converted to become a Christian. And so we see it talked about in this term of calling all throughout the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, it says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 20, 23 and 24, it says that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Or how about 1 Thessalonians 2, 12? It says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so the gospel call is generally given to all humankind and that broad calling is met by a specific or internal calling of the Spirit of God in your heart and in your mind and you respond to God as a result. And this is based on God's covenant love for you in eternity past. And so here we pick up the second half, right? We have just a couple more of these terms to go. But this is where Romans 5 through 8 really has been camping for some time. We don't need to go into great explanation about what it means to be justified. Look at Romans chapter 5 or go back and refresh with the sermons that we preached. To be justified just very simply means that through faith in Jesus, you gain a right standing before God. God declares you righteous based on the merits of Jesus himself that are applied to you. You're just, you're justified. Or to be glorified 
Romans chapter 8, we've been talking about this, that the glory of God will be revealed for us and in us in all of eternity, that our bodies will be redeemed, that this is not the end, that there's something beyond this into eternity, and we will spend that eternity with perfected minds and bodies with God forever. And so we might summarize the promise and the ground for the promise in this way. That God uses the circumstances of your life to accomplish his eternal purposes in you. Christian, you should have great hope no matter where you are today, no matter what your experience, whether you're on the ups or whether you're on the downs, or somewhere in the middle, that God uses the circumstances of your life to accomplish eternal purposes in you. Isn't that great? I hope you're excited about that. That the circumstances of today or tomorrow are not meaningless. That God is doing something with them. And it's actually for my eternal good and for your eternal good. Tim Keller uses a great analogy to illustrate this point. He writes, imagine with me that you have two women of the same age, of the same socioeconomic status, of the same education level, and even the same temperament. And you hire them both and you say to each one of them, your job is to work on an assembly line. You are going to put part A into part B and then hand it off to the next person. For eight hours a day, five days a week. And you put these two women in different but identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, ventilation. You give them the very same number of breaks in a day and it's very boring work. And their conditions are the same in every single way except for one. To the first woman, you tell her that at the end of the year that you will pay her $30,000. And to the second woman, you tell her that you will pay her $30 million. And after a couple of weeks, the first woman will be saying, isn't this tedious? Isn't this driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman will say, no. This is perfectly acceptable to me. In fact, I whistle while I work. What's going on here? Two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways. What's happening? What makes the difference? It is their expectation of the future. What we believe about the future controls how we are experiencing our present. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures in this way. And so, Christian, if you know the future, if you know that God is working out a glorified future in you, then you can look at your present circumstances differently. When you look at the hardships you have, you don't need to be tempted to think that God has somehow abandoned you. You don't need to think that God has somehow revoked his promises that he gave to you. When you struggle with chronic pain or with illness, you don't need to succumb to the world's message that somehow you must not be a child of God or that God doesn't love you anymore. Instead, you know that God God can even take your pain or the terrible circumstance that you're in at its worst and he can use it for something that is of eternal good for you. 
When life gets hard, you don't need to think that Jesus, who united himself to you through faith, has now somehow decoupled himself from you and decided to let you go. No, no, no. God has eternal purposes in you and for you. God uses the circumstances of your life to accomplish eternal purposes in you. I close this morning with a quote from Spurgeon, who once wrote this. He said, We shall behold his glory. We shall be with him where he is, and we, sh- we shall be ourselves glorious in his glory. Is he exalted? You also shall be lifted up. Is he a king? You also shall not be uncrowned. Is he a victor? You also shall bear a palm. Is he full of joy and rejoicing? So also shall your soul be filled to the brim of delights in eternity, where he is every saint shall be ere long. God uses the circumstances of your life to accomplish his purposes, his eternal purposes in you. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the purposes you have for us even more clearly to feel and to know that you are enacting something glorious for our eternal future. Help us to wrestle with the truths of foreknowledge and predestination and all the questions that they evoke within us while at the same time being humble before you, recognizing that you are a sovereign king who acts how you want, when you want, and in this very case, that for those who are called according to your purpose, those who love you, you exercise so much good and love and kindness to us. Let us, Lord, revel in the glory of this truth. Let us find hope in the reality of an eternal future. And let us have confidence in the promise that you give, that through all the ups and downs of life, that you are right there working them out for our good. We pray this for the sake of Jesus. Amen.